Welcome to That'll Preach, weekly podcast on theology and philosophy, historically informed. Slightly irreverent. Slightly irrelevant. (laughs) Slightly irrelevant, slightly irreverent. But uh, we tell it like it is. We are uh, doing a series on C.S. Lewis, and we tell it like it is. I mean, when we disagree with C.S. Lewis, we take all Clive Staples to task. St. Louis. St. Louis, right. (laughs) And uh, but I'm Brian. I'm joined with Paul, and uh, we are going to continue looking at uh, St. Louis's uh, uh, book, Miracles. People are going to think we're Catholic now. I know St. Well, Louis. Paul, are you Catholic? I'm not. Okay, we'll see. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it's not controversial, right? We're looking at uh, a couple interesting thoughts chapters that he has in his book, Miracles. If you never checked out Miracles, it's a good book to check out. Mm-hmm. Probably his most outrightly outright philosophical work. It's his most philosophical work. Yeah, he's trying to do a lot of philosophy here. Trying. Oh, that's a lot of stress in that trying there. Paul. We did two episodes on why Lewis was wrong. I, know, I feel like we're for, allowed to say that now. It's all for clickbait. <laughs> but um, no, Lu- what you do? You just broke I just your had to desk. move my table. Jeez. It was, I, <laughs> but um, we're gonna keep rolling because this is live ish uncut uncut but uh one of the things that's great about this book is it's really a book that he wrote talking about the issue of uh objections to christianity based upon naturalism Mm -hmm. just the idea that there's nothing more than the physical world is that a fair yeah way to put it and he was dealing with that and in lewis's particular time i mean you had all these technological innovations he's writing uh in the 40s 50s 60s that that kind of era, era And with technology comes a kind of sense of humanity reaching a point where it can discard the fairy tales of the past. Yeah. Ideas of of God and, and religion and, and specifically miracles. And that's why his book's called Miracles. It's it's really making a defense for why miracles are plausible. It's not some kind of childhood wishful thinking. Um, we're not talking about the tooth fairy or Santa Claus, but that miracles are defensible, defendable, defensible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, but not only that, but there are actually holes in just automatically assuming that the world's this machine, this closed system, and there's no room for interruptions of the natural order or that, mm-hmm. that to, to believe in the supernatural is to be a child and not sophisticated. And Lewis does a good job of saying, look, here are some things you might want to think about if you are going to immediately, in a knee-jerk reaction kind of way, discount any kind of possibility of miracles. Mm-hmm. And obviously with Christianity, miracles are at the heart of it. You have the miracle of the death and resurrection of Christ. You have the miracle of the incarnation. You've got the miracle of the exodus and all these different types of things. So this is intimately tied to our faith. Um, but Lewis, again, is dealing with people. He's trying to win people. And so his arguments aren't necessarily slam dunk, 100% bulletproof arguments for God's existence. And we talked about that in the last episode. But really, again, just trying to give a compelling vision of the Christian life, a plausible vision of supernatural occurrences, and really a practical way of thinking through the way that we analyze the world, right? We're always looking at the world through a certain set of lenses. And if you automatically look at the world assuming there's no supernatural explanation, well, then you can kind of always find the answer you're looking for mm-hmm. in, in, in a sense. And so he's talked about morality, how morality, in order for it to be objective, 
and unchanging. It needs to have some kind of transcendent, supernatural foundation. At least that's what he argues. Mm-hmm. And uh, But th- today we're going to look at chapters 7 and 8. Really focusing on chapter 7 where he talks about some red herrings. And it's interesting how this, this is kind of the phase 2 of his book. He's mm-hmm. sort of finished the groundwork for what he's going to argue. Now he's going to talk about some red herrings. So what is a red herring, Paul? What, what, what does that mean? I think herrings are fish, right? They <laughs> That look that you're giving me. I thought they were kind of kinds of birds. No, red herring. Wait, are you serious? Herring is definitely a fish. We're gonna Google this. No, real quick. I, I'm I'm positive. I'm I'm not even. You're just feigning ignorance. Yes, a red herring. Herring is a fish. Red herring is a kind of like informal fallacy. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You yeah. never had pickled herring? No. No. Wow, you need to live in the Midwest. I actually had pickled herring like on for Joe the last Rogan. time. You know, whenever Joe Rogan's like. <laughs> Uh, Jamie, his friend Jamie, right? He's like, Jamie, pull that up, pull that up. Like, I feel like I just want it. I need my own Jamie. Be like, pull that up. Look, look up red herring. Okay, so red herring, whatever kind of animal it is, fish. He's just the- saying there, there are a couple of misconceptions or a couple of bad, fallacious arguments that people tend to make against miracles, and he's just addressing them in this chapter seven. So he raises two of these red herrings. The first one is actually really interesting, which is just the idea that he thinks some atheists will say, look, People believed in miracles in olden days because they didn't know how science worked. They didn't know how birth worked. And so a virgin birth was just like, we might balk at that today because we have science, but miracles are just the kinds of things that you'd expect primitive, unscientific people to believe in because they didn't have a good grasp of the world like we do now. So these are like bad arguments for atheism. Or bad arguments for naturalism. Bad that, arguments that, for why miracles that still are have, possible. Even yeah. though they're bad arguments, they still have some like cultural weight to them. Like you're kind of like, yeah, you yeah. know. But but then when you really think about it, you're like, you shouldn't be so confident in those assumptions. Is that right? Right. right. He's trying to dismantle those objections. So let's talk about that first red herring. Uh, that there's no, like basically that primitive peoples are the yeah. kinds of peoples who would believe in Man, miracles. You hear this all the time. Oh yeah. I mean, you, I feel like. This idea of, um, you know, they couldn't explain how rain happened. They didn't understand mm-hmm. evaporation and condensation and precipitation. It's kind of that's elitist, a, a little it, bit it racist is. too. <laughs> like, a little racist. David Hume, the Scottish they philosopher, woke, man. <laughs> he accused uh, basically like primitive non-English speaking peoples of not being educated. And so that's why they believe in miracles. And he, it's, it's a kind of like really elitist kind of racist view that says, well, those people over there, of course, they're going to believe in miracles because they're not educated like us. But Lewis's whole point is, no, they they fully grasp those things as miracles. They're, it's not like we discovered recently that dead people stay dead or that right. virgins can't give birth. Indeed, like this is why Joseph in the gospel narrative wants to send Mary away quietly because he understood the implication of what a virgin birth, like, of course, it's a virgin birth. How but he be, wasn't right? sitting there going, oh, well, of course, virgin births happen all the time. Right, or, right. Or, yeah, he understood how babies were made. And that's why he felt so scandalized that his wife suddenly was pregnant. Yeah. Or even you think about the resurrection accounts. It's not like if you want to start or continue your movement after your leader dies, telling people that he r- rose from the dead and ascended. Absolutely. Isn't exactly the best way to get people started. The only the, the most plausible reason why people would have continued to worship Christ after his death was that they believed that he was raised, that he would actually, they saw him. Yeah. And, I mean, uh, but again, it, it, the idea to think that 
you know, everyone back in the past just believed, were just naive and believed that, you know, the world was like a cartoon or something. I don't know. Like anything could happen is not true. They had an understanding that there were certain things that people didn't come back from the dead. And that's exactly why they thought of it as a miracle. Right. Like you can't, you can't believe something is a miracle unless you know what right. the regular laws of nature look like. And like if they were you regular. You can't identify a resurrection as a miracle if you don't think dead people stay dead. And if they were regular too. I mean, these people, when they saw Jesus do miracles, they're like, wow, that's a miracle. They weren't like, oh yeah, right, right. join the club. <clears throat> like they recognize that that doesn't normally happen. Yes. So it is, it, again, and I love, I love how you put it as elitist because it is kind of elitist. Oh, yeah. And it's sort of like, well, you haven't actually thought through, just as you're saying to them, you haven't thought through, could there be a natural explanation? It's sort of like, well, you haven't even thought through your own bias in this in this particular discussion. Mm -hmm. And I do hear that a lot, though. And it is so easy to fall into that, just, just to sit there and go, yeah, I mean, we're smarter now. Mm. You know, we have the internet now and, and, and we know how science works and all that stuff. And... That's just not the case. I would even say that some as really well-trained scientists, they'd probably say there's a lot of stuff we don't know. There's right. a lot like we, like you know, science is really about a method. It's not it's something that has explanatory power for everything. Mm -hmm. And um, so yeah, I think there's a little bit of humility that needs to be had when having this conversation. And we shouldn't just you know instantly gravitate towards the idea that we roll our eyes at. at you know, the miracles and, mm -hmm. and we just sort of accept them begrudgingly, but go, why do we have such an aversion to the fact that miracles are possible? Right. And I think Lewis's point is that science helps us better identify miracles because the more knowledge we have, the more we're sure that this is a well-established pattern in nature that makes it much more easy to identify when something doesn't follow that pattern. Right. When we, when we know that like, all right, millions of people have died. They stay dead after they die. Now, when something seems to go against that grain, it strikes us as more profound and odd. And it's, it's precisely when we can identify patterns and laws of nature and regularities, as Lewis calls them, that a miracle is a disruption of that kind of pattern or order. And you wouldn't even be able to recognize something as a miracle if you didn't know that there was a pattern. Right. If you didn't think dead people stayed dead, you wouldn't think a resurrection is a miracle. If you didn't think that water just stayed, that people can't walk on water, right? Then walking on water wouldn't be a miracle. So you have to have some basic scientific grasp of the world to even say or call something miraculous. So the fact that the early church or people in the quote unquote primitive times, the fact that they still identified things as miracles assumes they don't happen often. And it assumes they there's what a the world normal like. right. way of operation. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. And because uh, I think people th say that for, for you know, when, when, when they make those comments of like, well, we're more advanced now, it's like there was a natural explanation and people just tacked on a supernatural explanation. And I don't think it's that simple. Yeah. Uh, N.T. Wright's book, The Resurrection of the Son of God, which is a, one of the best defenses for the resurrection. It's also massive. It's massive. It's like 800 pages. It is. But he, he makes the point that I, I'm about to save you a ton of money and, and, and reading. But his whole point is this. You look at, I think it's John 11 or somewhere in John, in the middle of John, when Jesus visits um, Mary, Mary mm -hmm. and uh, Lazarus has died and Jesus says he'll rise again. And Mary says something interesting. She mm -hmm. says, I know he will rise at the end of the age. Right. So in Jewish theology, there was a belief of the resurrection of the dead. And uh, that would be part of God's salvation and judgment of the world. And you see that in 
Daniel 12, other places. But if you were a Jewish person in Jesus' day, you knew that people would rise from the dead. It just wouldn't happen in mm -hmm. the middle of history. It would happen at the end of history. And for Jesus to be raised in the middle of history is so countercultural. Mm -hmm. But there's an example of there was an expectation and something that was so against it that it had to happen. But maybe that's on a tangent. But Lewis kind of talks about that too, where he's basically like, why do we assume, one, think about laws of nature. Laws of nature, we, we observe that things happen a certain way, but that mm -hmm. doesn't mean that they will always happen that way exactly. in the future. Yeah. Maybe you can make a probability, like it's most likely it'll mm -hmm. be the same, but even then, if it's talking about probabilities, you leave the chance that something crazy could happen, right. a miracle could happen. Yeah. And he's like, that's the point, that's why it's called a miracle. Exactly. It's a low percentage thing, yep. but it doesn't mean that it can't happen. I wanna read this little quote right here that captures that view perfectly. He says in chapter seven, mere experience even if prolonged for a million years, cannot tell us whether the thing is possible. Experiment finds out what regularly happens in nature, the norm or rule to which she works. Those who believe in miracles are not denying that there is such a norm or rule. They're only saying that it can be suspended. A miracle is by definition an exception to the rule. So miracles are only recognizable if we have rules or norms. If we know this is how nature typically operates when left on its own. But the person who's not a naturalist, the person who accepts that there are, that there's transcendence, that there's something outside of space-time, manner, and energy, they, like, if, if that's even possible, then you have to be open to the possibility that there are these exceptions that come from the outside. So when you're describing how the world works scientifically, all you're saying is, this is how things happen when left to their own devices, right. when left on their own. But if I if I introduce something new into the system, then that's totally permissible that something else can happen outside of that as an exception, as a, Lewis doesn't like the language of a breaking or a violation, but it is a kind of exception to the norm. And it, he talks about how nature sort of adapts to it. So there's there's a disruption or there's, there's something that suspends the laws of nature or mm -hmm. a, a miracle. And nature is the type of thing, if, if nature is not all that there is, and there's mm -hmm. something beyond nature, that opens the possibility for nature to be something that can be acted upon. Right. Whereas in naturalism, if you just believe that the physical world is all there is, then nature is everything. There's nothing outside of it that can act upon it. Mm. But why do we assume that nature is all that there is? Right. Right. And that's the assumption that he's challenging yes. and he's going, and if you do, then <clears throat> you will never have a category. Like you've already decided in advance what your conclusion is. Mm -hmm. Right. And he, that's why he says the red herring is really about experience. Mm -hmm. Just because things always have gone this way doesn't mean they can't. Right. I remember like a, one of my elementary school and maybe middle school um, science teachers was talking about how um, there is a small, tiny chance that your hand could go through a table if the molecules mm -hmm. align just right mm -hmm. and you did it at the right time. Mm -hmm. Now, it's nearly impossible for that to happen <laughs> to the point where they just say it's impossible. Sure. But there is a mathematical possibility of that happening, right? Yeah. And so that's a little bit of a hyperbole or an exaggeration, but there's something to that with Lewis where he's like, we can't, science alone, observation alone is not sufficient to rule out any kind of supernatural intervention. Right. In fact, it's not even really meant to do that. It's right. just meant to establish norms. Mm -hmm. And the Christian goes, 100%. Right. That's the whole point. Miracles are not normal they're not happening every day that's why they're miracles right um and and <clears throat> something we talked about before we started recording was the idea that miracles also have a message to them right 
It's not just sort of random. Yeah. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, this is, Lewis says it really, this is like Lewis in, in, in total form. He says, miracles, if they occur, must like all events be revelations of the total harmony of all that exists. Nothing arbitrary, nothing simply stuck on and left unreconciled with the texture of total reality can be admitted. By definition, miracles must interrupt the usual course of nature, but if they are real, they must, in the very act of doing so, assert all the more the unity and self-consistency of total reality at a deeper level. They will not be like some unmetrical lumps of prose breaking in the unity of a poem. They will be like that crowning metrical audacity, which though it may be paralleled nowhere else in the poem, yet coming just where it does and affecting just what it affects is to those who understand the supreme revelation of the unity in the poet's conception. This is beautiful. It, it's that idea in the fullness of time, Jesus came, right? There's a kind of fittingness to the arc of the story that miracles are these, they're not just like interruptions or what Lewis calls ugly uh, lumps of prose into a poem. They're sort of crowning jewels to creation, to nature. And so they, they help you see that nature is a unified whole and they communicate something about the miracle worker, namely God himself. So rather than undermining nature, it actually makes nature more compelling and unified and self-consistent and it evidences what he calls the total harmony of the world. We see that there are these norms, but these little glimpses of the next world or the outside world help us see nature in a more full light. Right. It's, it's almost like nature is able to be viewed as an ordinary because we have the extraordinary to compare it to. Mm. Or you think mm. about the, like you said, in the fullness of time, Christ came. Right. So it's not as though God has been taking the form of a human, you know, doing multiple incarnations. It's only happened once. It will mm -hmm. only happen once. Right. So our mind can be drawn to it so that we can see it as significant. Yeah. And in a sense, in the incarnation is the key to the whole structure of history. Mm -hmm. Right. Think of, and he says with a poem, imagine you have all these rhyming stanzas, then you have one that doesn't rhyme. And he goes, mm -hmm. well, that one line that doesn't rhyme is purposefully not like the others. It's mm -hmm. unparalleled for this reason. It is the high point. Right. The poet is now driving you to pay attention to the heart of his story. Mm -hmm. And it is in light of that, that the whole poem makes sense. In right. the same way, he's focusing all of humanity on the incarnation, on the resurrection to say, hey, if this is, I want, this is so out of the ordinary, I want your eyes glued to the screen, so to speak, mm -hmm. to pay attention to this. Because this is teaching you the deeper meaning of, of all the world, that there is a God who wants to redeem humanity. Mm -hmm. And it's through that we, we can look at all of nature. Right. And, and and we can say, oh, this is nature is a part of God's purposes in the world, mm -hmm. right? And um, so it is. It, it, I think our modern skepticism for anything supernatural, because even when we say supernatural, mm -hmm. we sort of think of like ghosts, yeah, yeah, or like weird visions, or you can levitate things with your mind. I right. mean, it's it's a very and that's not what Lewis is talking about. He's right. not saying that like, you know, unicorns pop out of nowhere randomly. Right, right. There's no randomness to it. Miracles are God's specific actions, suspending the laws of reality. To, to reveal himself. To reveal himself. Yeah, right. That's the huge thing. It's mm -hmm. a revel. The resurrection isn't just, ta-da, I yeah. did something weird. Or the healings Jesus did, they all were part of revealing the character, nature, and purposes of God. And I think, I think that what that means for us 
as people who are trying to be faithful to scripture is to, when we do encounter miracles in the Old and New Testaments, to try to understand them in their context. So now if we have this operating principle that God's miraculous work in nature is for the purpose of revealing himself, then we look at these miraculous interventions in the scriptures and try to see and connect the dots. What is God trying to do? So you look at the the plagues and the miracles in Exodus. God bringing down plagues on the Egyptians, parting the Red Sea, the connections there. What would Israel have understood about what God was doing and showing his power over the specific Egyptian gods in that moment, right? Like there's, there's a specific context that the miracles are supposed to be interpreted. And these are not just random, like why is it frogs and locusts and gnats and blood? Like these are communicating very specific things about God and his power over the Egyptian gods. And so it's, it's for this reason that we don't want to think of miracles as just pure violations. as just God making pink unicorns popping into existence, right? That would technically be a violation of a norm or a scientific rule. But it's not a miracle in the sense that Lewis is talking about because it's not intending to communicate something about God's nature. It's not a self-revelation. And you could think about weird, like you go on the History Channel, you go on TV and you see like, Weird occurrences. Paranormal. Weird, yeah, yeah, and you're you, maybe rightly so. You're like skeptical of it. Mm-hmm. But the reason you should be skeptical is because these aren't. These are just sort of weird things that happen that usually have a natural explanation. Or they're one-offs. Or they're one-offs. Yeah, and they have no content. It's it's right, not. It, right. It's just that was weird. Yep. And there's probably some normal explanation. Mm-hmm. The miracles of the Bible are not of that nature. Right. Right. Miracles of the Bible are purposeful. Mm-hmm. And they're meant to be seen as miracles, not because it's just like weird, like the matrix is glitching or something, but because God is intending to show us something through it. It's yeah. revelatory. Right. Um, Lewis has a great line where he says, nothing can seem extraordinary until you have discovered what is ordinary. Mm. And he says, if you have not yet noticed that the sun always rises in the east, you will see nothing miraculous about his rising one morning in the west. Hmm. And again, it's that idea that because we know what is normal, we can be clued into what is supernatural. Yeah. But also, in understanding it, we, we, we have a greater understanding of the goodness of the ordinary life, right? That these, that these things are not opposed to the supernatural, hmm. but that the majority of our life is ordinary. Mm-hmm. And I think that that has some cultural weight to it today where we're searching for the extraordinary. We want to be the best, the biggest this. We want a deeper experience with God. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but then we have to ask ourselves, are we are we looking for the extraordinary at the expense of appreciating the ordinary? Mm. Because in order to appreciate the extraordinary, you have to be grounded in the ordinary. Mm-hmm. And that's something that you see in a lot of people that Jesus interacts with in the gospel. And I think you see it in Lewis. Lewis is a very grounded guy. Mm-hmm. He's amazed by the wonder of the world, right? And he's just saying, look, uh, the beauty that we see in ordinary life is beautiful because we realize it's been intended to be this way by a creator. Right. And the reason that we know that the ordinary world has meaning is because the creator has revealed himself in the extraordinary. Mm. Right. Yeah. It's sort of like he's given us the bigger story so we can understand the smaller story in its proper perspective. That, um, that point about, God intending the world to be this way, I think is, is, is right on. So we often talk about how, this has come up a few times, this idea that grace perfects nature. Mm-hmm. And so I think when we look at the miracles of Jesus, for example, they're extraordinary in the sense that they are 
violations to scientific norms, but they're also ordinary in one sense. Because when Jesus takes a lame person and makes them not lame, or takes, makes them takes, cool, makes he takes a lame person and makes them cool <laughs> by this jacket, <laughs> or he takes a, a blind person and gives them sight, there we see a shift to ordinary in the sense of this is God's intended design and function and plan for humans all along, that they uh, that they have food, that they have sight, that they have uh, the ability to walk around, and so. God's grace, God's miracles in those situations are not taking human nature and making it something supernatural or contrary to what human nature is, but it's taking broken nature and fixing it and restoring it to the way that it ought to be. So in one sense, the miracle is extraordinary because it's something outside of what a scientific norm would dictate, but it's also ordinary in that sin is the thing that breaks the ordinary thing. Sin is what takes humanity and makes us lame and blind and poor and impoverished and things like that. And that is the thing that miracles cured or fixed in the Old and New Testaments. We see people being raised back to life that tells Mm -hmm. us that human nature is meant for immortality, is meant to not die. And so it's sin and the fall and our rebellion against God that's taking the good human nature and making it into this way that it ought not be. And God's grace and the form of these miracles is bringing us back to the way it's supposed to be. It's it's resuming the ordinary. That's so key to think about because the miracles, again, they're not like parlor tricks, Mm -hmm. not God going, ta-da, you know. Right. They are his restorative power, Mm -hmm. taking what has been cursed and ruined by the fall and by his grace and his power, reconstructing it, Mm -hmm. renewing it. And I think that is another way to think about it. Like when we say that we believe in the supernatural as Christians, we're not saying that we have seances with angels or mm. that we, you know, hear whispers or <clears throat> something, something's like mystical thing. What we're saying is that reality as we see it is not the totality of reality. Mm. Right. Right. The world that we see around us, there's more to it. Primarily there's a God who transcends creation, who has a personal <clears throat> relationship with us. Right. And, just because you can't see it. I love when Romans 8 is like, who hopes for what they can't see? Like, mm-hmm. yeah, of course you can't see it. Mm-hmm. One, God is invisible. Two, the hope isn't fully here yet. So right. like, it requires faith. Right. And faith gets a bad rap as like naive, you know, you're just, it's just wishful thinking. And it's like, well, no. No, why, why do you, why do you believe it's wishful thinking? Mm-hmm. You know? Um, and, and, and there's an existential sort of uh, side to this that, Lewis gets into in his second objection or second red herring. Mm -hmm. And he says this, it's the second red herring. Many people say they, people in the old days, could believe in miracles in olden times because they had a false conception of the universe. They thought the earth was the largest thing in it and man the most important creature. It therefore seemed reasonable to suppose that the creator was specially interested in man and might even interrupt (laughs) the course of nature for his benefit. But now that we know the real immensity of the universe, Now that we perceive our own planet and even the whole solar system to be only a speck, it becomes ludicrous to believe in them any longer. We have discovered our significance and can no longer suppose that God is so drastically concerned in our petty affairs. Hmm. So here's how technology starts to shift the consciousness of an entire culture and society. Mm -hmm. We look out into the night sky and we realize we're just a small, insignificant, pale blue dot, you know, 
in this vast, uncaring void of a universe. We orbit the sun. We're the third planet from the sun. We're not the center of the universe. Nature shows us that. Mm -hmm. So if we discover through science that we're so insignificant, then that should change whether God actually cares about us. And Lewis's response to that is, why? Mm -hmm. Isn't it the case that our humility can be founded upon how small we are? Mm -hmm. And isn't it the beautiful thing that God, who is infinite and transcends the entire massive universe, mm. would be born to be a baby? Isn't that more powerful? And so he challenges that immediate assumption that if we are insignificant based upon our observations of the world, therefore God can't exist because if God exists, we wouldn't be so insignificant. Mm. And I go, well, what if we're so insignificant and God still exists yep. and he loves <laughs> us even though we're insignificant? Right. That's Why exactly can't that it. be the case? Yeah. Lewis says, I mean, this is just directly from chapter eight. Christianity does not involve the belief that all things were made for man. It does involve the belief that God loves man and for his sake became man and died. So the two things are not mutually exclusive. Like you're right. Science has showed us that we're not the center of the universe, but that makes the story of redemption all the more powerful. And it puts grace on display in an even more glorious way, because not only are we not the pinnacle of the universe, we are, we're nowhere near that status. And yet God condescended to that level to become one of us on the pale blue dot. And so it, it doesn't, it doesn't rule out miracles, but if anything, it makes miracles more profound. Um, I like how he talks about the possibility of there being other races and aliens. Yeah. Talk about that a little bit. <laughs> I mean, Lewis is like, it's possible there are other rational creatures on other planets that we just haven't discovered. Maybe they didn't fall. Maybe they didn't need a, uh, like an atonement. Maybe they were just a lot better than we were. Um, so he's, he's totally open. He's like, I'm not assuming that humans are the only race or rational creature that exists in the world. It's possible there are other ones, but again, none of this is, is amounting to an objection against miracles or against the supernatural at all. So it may just be that they were like us and they didn't fall. Or even if they did fall, God is choosing to save them in some different way. But it's not, it's not an objection against the miraculous. You can still have miracles, even if there are, you know, Martians and Venetians and what's another? I was going to say like a Star Wars. Well, I mean, <laughs> Lewis has that, the space trilogy where he, he does, basically yeah. explores mm -hmm. that. He, it, uh, it's about how the gospel would like work on alien planets, That's basically. Right, yeah. it's, it's a strange book. I mean, yeah. I, I had a hard time reading through it. It's, 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 it's a lot. It takes, it takes a lot to get into them. But I think it is an important topic. And what I love about Lewis is how, and maybe it's not so much Lewis as this is just how the way things are, but there's really nothing new under the sun. Mm -hmm. Lewis is dealing with different versions of what we're dealing with today. I think his was more, I think he's sort of in the heyday of, of modernism. Hmm. Uh, and we're in sort of, Postmodern slash something else weird. You said all the buzzwords right all there. All the buzzwords, yeah. So it's not exactly the same thing, but at the core, I think, and especially when you're having conversations with people, and we talked a little bit about this in the last episode, challenging people's assumptions. Because if you never challenge their assumptions, it's it's sort of like you're trying to get them to see something that they've already decided they don't want to see. Mm -hmm. Right? And even the a, a lot of objections to Christianity, I think especially for people in our generation, is I don't want to look stupid. I don't want to look like 
I'm believing in a fairy tale. I don't want to look like I'm not facing the hard, cold truth of reality. Mm-hmm. And one, I think Christianity faces the hard, cold truths of reality. But two, uh, why do you have this aversion to miracles? What, what has been conditioned in your mind? What are things that you assume that would make belief in miracles or the supernatural or, or God even seem so childish? Mm. Why does this feel so absurd? Is that because it is absurd or is it because our culture has conditioned us to where that idea is beyond the pale? Mm-hmm. So it's sort of like the Overton window for for <laughs> philosophy or thinking. You know what I'm saying? Like <laughs> the Overton window is basically societies decide what's kosher to say and what's not. Okay. You've never heard that? No, I haven't. Oh, okay. That's, it's that's the idea that, that culture will shift like... So certain topics today that were easily discussed in the 60s mm, are now outside the Overton window, outside okay. the window of proper discourse. Mm, okay. so you can't bring that up. So like saying, advocating for Nazism is outside the Overton window. Right. Rightly so. Right. I hope we don't have discussions about that. Or I would say like Holocaust deniers. Right. You really just don't. Those are people where you're like, eh, you have freedom to say that, but you are not somebody we want to give a lot of We won't take it seriously. Yeah. yeah. Now that can be dangerous though, too, because if, the Overton window shifts away from religion or God at all, then mm-hmm. it becomes scandalous mm-hmm. to even speak about sure. the supernatural. We may be heading towards that. Mm-hmm. In certain areas, it seems like that would be the case. But I think Lewis feels the pull of that, and he's trying to fight against it a little bit. I love how we ended up on Overton window after starting out in Miracles. <laughs> well, There's definitely a connection. I was just going to say, just to like frame the whole discussion, Lewis is again coming back to this idea that it's a philosophical question, not a scientific question, whether miracles can happen. So you can't just appeal to a scientific regularity and say, look, science tells us that dead people stay dead. The Christian, the person who is going to say, yeah, I agree with you. Dead people stay dead unless something from the outside comes in. And so this is why I love his, remember his example with the pennies? If I put six pennies into a drawer on Monday and six more on Tuesday, the law decrees other things being equal, I will find 12 pennies there on Wednesday. Yeah, if you leave 12 pennies in a drawer, yeah. come back later, there should be 12 pennies. But if the drawer has been robbed, I may in fact find only two. Something will have been broken, the lock of the drawer or the laws of England, but I will not conclude that the laws of arithmetic will right. not have been broken, right? right. So it's not, it's not that math doesn't work. It's not that science doesn't work when a miracle happens because they're just telling you this is what happens assuming certain conditions, assuming nothing gets in the way. But if there is a God, and if God can interact with nature, then yeah, God can reverse death. God can reverse blindness. God can, you know, part a sea if he wants to. All of that is totally permissible. And so it's not a strictly scientific question. Indeed, it's not a scientific question at all. It is a question of your philosophical presumptions and presuppositions. I think a lot of skepticism with miracles is tied in emotionally and experientially to like the problem of evil. It's like, man, why didn't oh, yeah, we sure. prayed and why didn't, mm-hmm. you know, this person get healed of cancer? Why can't this amputee regrow an hmm. arm? And that is more related to the philosophical question of evil. Sure. Yeah. I mean, than it is miracles. And so I, I think it's important to recognize that. Yeah. That when someone's wrestling with that kind of question, it's not really arguing about supernaturalism or naturalism. That's more of a a personal kind of Mm. grappling with the goodness of God in the face of real tragedy, loss, and evil. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
but this is more of an academic kind of talk of sure. just sort of the run of the mill like thinking are that miracles just possible yeah like why yeah. even consider christianity right. when it's so po when it's so clear that miracles don't happen mm -hmm. and i think lewis is going look how clear we talk why do you think it's so clear like what makes you feel so confident about that mm -hmm. i think it's a really helpful discussion to have with people who um maybe wrestle too from from within the church with with um growing up in maybe a very heavily fundament, fundamentalist background mm -hmm. and going and learning about science or biology or things like that, not making any specific claims about like evolution, mm -hmm. but just that there can be a counter effect when if you don't sort of think through it like Lewis is, you can get to the point where you're so distrustful of any kind of science or that you, uh, you become somebody who will actually misrepresent it or tamper with it to fit a religious structure sure. instead of using it as a handmaiden, a tool to help us understand the scriptures better. Now right. that leads to a whole different topic there, but I, I got that sense too, where Lewis is going, no, no, we're, we're not anti like the Science, study and observation right. of the world. We're mm -hmm. just saying that it's a little bit apples and oranges, Right. that we're talking about philosophical issues. Mm -hmm. So if you kind of make the argument of like, you know, give me evidence that God exists, one, you're assuming that God is like a creature in this world mm -hmm. or something that can be studied like everything else in this world. Right. When we know from scripture and revelation, even philosophical, philosophical reasoning that God is wholly other. He's not somebody that can be discovered in the same way an mm -hmm. atom or hydrogen molecule can be discovered. Right. Right. So again, but built into that question of give me proof of God's existence is an assumption that God is a certain way. Mm -hmm. Right. Or it's assumption that God already hasn't revealed that. So you could say, here's how we know that there's the supernatural, the resurrection. Well, I didn't believe it happened. Well, why? Because resurrections don't happen. Okay, <laughs> right? <laughs> then you've already decided ahead of time what you think. Mm. So we're more influenced by the spirit of the age than we'd like to admit. And when we sit here and say, well, I just want to make my own opinion. I want to look at the evidence for myself. I'm like, maybe. But then you also have to challenge your assumptions or be challenged in your assumptions by C.S. Lewis mm -hmm. or the guys that that'll preach. That's right. Am I right? C.S. Lewis wasn't that wrong in this chapter. He wasn't. He wasn't. He has the Paul call a seal of approval. Except when he says that miracles aren't breaks in laws of nature. He said, okay, so talk about that. What, what, <laughs> what bothered you about that phrase? Say that again. Lewis doesn't think that miracles are breaking the laws of nature. So when he says, for example... Um, let's see, in this section, it is inaccurate to define a miracle as something that breaks the laws of nature. Literally, it, he said, it doesn't. If I knock out my pipe, I alter the position of, of many atoms in the long run. All of the atoms are there. Nature digests or assimilates this event with perfect ease and harmonizing it, blah, blah, blah. So he thinks that miracles are just like natural reallocations or redistributions of matter and energy. And he gives the example of like the virgin birth. He says, if God creates a miraculous sperm in the body of a virgin, it does not proceed to break any laws. But you read that, you're like, what? God's creating a miraculous sperm. I in know. The body. <laughs> he's, 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 creating a <laughs> he's creating magic <laughs> sperm. <laughs> You've defined exactly what it is to break a law of nature. He says, well, his reasoning is this, because afterwards he says the laws at once take it over. Nature is ready. Pregnancy follows according to the normal laws. Nine months later, a child is born. That's fine. 
but it's still the case that I God know. created magic sperm. I know. And then a baby was con- so nature takes over at that point. But you're definitely saying God did something to kickstart yeah, that it's, process. It's that's more different from nature. It's it's sort of it's more than God just sped up a natural process. Right. It's like creating a magic sperm. Yeah. Right. I don't know. Is that is that legit? Is that orthodox to say that? I I mean the conception happened. It did happen miraculously, but I don't know if it's. I mean, I imagine there had to have been something like a sperm cell. There had to have been DNA from a non. You know what? For our listeners out there. It, if you have an opinion on this, uh, go ahead and uh, DM us it. We would love to hear about it or comment whenever we post this. What do you think about magic episode? sperm? Yeah, do you think that that's a legit thing? <laughs> um, if, you have, if you're not following us, we're on the, uh, at That'll Preach podcast on Instagram. You can follow us there. But uh, what a lively discussion. <laughs> I, I wonder if we should cut it off there, maybe before we uh, end up getting canceled. Do you know Magic Spoon, that like new cereal that everyone loves? It's no. like no carbs, what? no sugar. It just When I heard Magic Sperm, I was like, that's... Uh... <laughs> Wow. Wow. Well, that could be your cereal brand, right? Uh, <laughs> anyway. Let's cut that out. <laughs> there, wait, there, are you, there's really a cereal like that? Magic Spoon? Yeah. Yeah, it's like no sugar, no carbs. If is you're listening, like Magic Spoon, you should sponsor us. It is not very good. It's not very good? It's disgusting. But if you want to avoid sugar and carbs, it's really high in protein. Okay. I've been doing it. I remember there used to be like a, a cereal where the spoon came with it and it would change colors. Oh, yes. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. What was that? If you know what that cereal was, make sure you DM us. Yeah, let us know. Let us <laughs> or know. Or send us a box. Send us a box of it, yeah, <laughs> along with Magical Spoon, but not not the other kind of magical thing we talked about. So, anyway, oh, thank you for listening. Uh, we'll be back next week continuing our C.S. Lewis series. Make sure you pick up the book, Miracles by C.S. Lewis, and uh, follow along with us, and we'll come back with more zany comments and informed opinions. Thank you for listening.